Hi, and welcome to Brentwood Stories. On February 27, 2020, the Brentwood Public Library hosted Dr. Zebulon Maletsky for a conference on African Americans and the right to vote. Zebulon was joined by panelists Mia Brett, Willie Mack, and Willie Johnson Jr. as they discussed an array of voters' rights topics. Zebulon is an assistant professor of Africana Studies and History at Stony Brook University. He is the author of numerous articles and essays, has hosted his own TED Talk, and is the author of an upcoming book on the civil rights movement in Boston. Zebulon has come to the library on more than one occasion now, and you can learn more about him in his most recent visit in a feature recently published by Newsday Newspaper. I will let Zebulon and his esteemed panelists take it from here. Enjoy. We are very excited to uh, talk about uh, our work and, uh, and to share with you and to have really engage, of course, as, as always happens here at Brentwood Public Library in a discussion uh, with, with folks who have come. Um, so my name is uh, uh, Zebulon Maletsky. I'm an assistant professor of uh, Africana Studies and History at Stony Brook University. Uh, I see some familiar faces, a couple in the audience, and it's good to see folks out again. Uh, if they come back, that means you weren't, you didn't stink it up too bad the first time, and so that's good. Um, and uh, I just want to welcome everybody. Um, and I'm going to move fairly quickly because we, we uh, only have an hour, and uh, we really hope to pack quite a bit in. Um, let's see. So, on our panel here, to my my left, starting all the way to the far left, uh, we have uh, Willie Mack. And Willie Mack is a second year PhD history student at uh, Stony Brook University. His research interests include 20th century US history, carceral studies, capitalism, and inequality. I just had an article published uh, on the uh, Society for United States History blog and has an article pending publication for the uh, African American Intellectual History Society blog, uh, both focusing on the role of race in policing and within mass media. And so he's going to be uh, talking uh, with us tonight a little bit, uh, his part uh, talking about felony disenfranchisement in particular. Uh, his essay on the building of Long Island, which examines the history of racial capitalism and segregation on Long Island, uh, was has been recently featured in the Race and Capitalism Project's digital forum next chapter. Um, and moving right along, um, we uh, also have uh, with us um, Mia Brett, who is, has, brings a wealth of experience uh, to her role as a PhD candidate currently in American legal history at Stony Brook. She is the co-founder of All Women's Progress, a political advocacy group transitioning to an intersectional feminist think tank. Um, she has spearheaded two voting rights initiatives, uh, Voter Empowerment Day, sorry, hashtag Voter Empowerment Day, <laughs> kind of important part of this. <laughs> Uh, she's big on Twitter, y'all. Check her out. Um, <laughs> dedicated to empowering people to combat voter suppression and step up and vote targeted to voting at HBCUs in particular. She's also written on voter suppression and, and women. Um, so she's kind of a big deal. Um, <laughs> and last but not least, um, uh, to my immediate left here um, is uh, William Johnson Jr. 
who has a bachelor's in history with a specialization in Islam and Africa. And now he is a master's candidate in Africana studies. He's been working with, uh, he's taken my class. He's worked with a number of my colleagues in the department. Um, and uh, recently, sounds like he's uh, shifting in direction and focusing a little bit more on the continent. Uh, and his his prog work in progress project is the Somalian state conflict of identity, political Islamization, and the peace building initiatives of the African Union mission in Somalia. He's also been inducted into the Phi Alpha Theta uh, uh, for, for his scholarship in the field of history, and also Delta Alpha Pi for academic excellence. He's a proud member of the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, ASALA, as am I, as a, myself. Um, and uh, he's also, uh, also, like our other two panelists, he brings uh, some interesting, uh, shall we call it extracurricular uh, activities. He's a, a, a professional jazz drummer uh, with the national, uh, has worked with the National Endowment of the, of the Arts as a master, with master drummer, excuse me, Jimmy Cobb, uh, most noted for his recording with Miles Davis, uh, Kind of Blue. And uh, he's been featured in New York Times, Village Voice, Harlem Times, and Billboard magazine for his uh, uh, his musical work, and uh, he's also quite uh, a, a sharp thinker. Can, I can attest to this as my former, you know, having been in my class, uh, in terms of some of the things that we're going to be talking about here. Now, some of his other things are numerous to mention, but he's uh, he's a veteran of the uh, uh, Marine Corps, uh, worked for 12 years as uh, federal government in the federal government as a civilian employee, and uh, also done some martial arts. I understand, so maybe he'll <laughs> share that with us a little later. Uh, we don't have time, I don't think, for a demonstration, but uh, but uh, believe me, if you knew this man, he could do it. All right. Um, so so welcome uh, everybody. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to start uh, with uh, Willie is going to uh, uh, take us through some of the, you know, because one of the uh, things that happens in this discussion and conversation about, about voting is the issue of felony disenfranchisement really is one I think that is both confusing to a lot of people um, or also sort of resides in that same kind of zone and feeling that many Americans have about convicts and about people in prison. There's not a lot of sympathy out there for, uh, for ex-felons. Um, but yet when we start to understand, as we are beginning to understand, uh, the structure of mass incarceration, uh, what, what folks today call the new Jim Crow, um, and, uh, uh, and, and, and even that longer history of, of uh, slavery by another name, you know, uh, all of these things um, are stuff that, uh, that his work is, is looking at, and he's going to help to elucidate some of the finer points of that detail. So uh, Willie uh, will be going first. Uh, good evening. Um, so I'm just gonna give a little quick overview of felony disenfranchisement. And in the back, if you're interested, there are flyers that they're nice enough to print out for us that you can take, it has a little bit more information. Um, but for right now, <clears throat> So what is felony disenfranchisement? Basically, it's the practice of barring individuals convicted of a felony um, 
the right to vote in national and local elections. It's derived from the English common law, um, also referred to as civil death. Uh, during the colonial period, it was usually based on egregious violations of the moral code. After the American Revolution, states <clears throat> began to expand this and include disenfranchisement penalties as punishment for all felonies. The post-Civil War period saw a marked increase in the use of felony disenfranchisement, and by 1869, 29 states had enacted felony disenfranchisement laws, most of them aimed to limit non-land-owning citizens of voting privilege. During the post-Reconstruction period, which is approximately 1877, uh, several southern states used felony disenfranchisement to target black people by using disenfranchisement as a penalty for felonies typically known to be committed by black men, but not white men, <clears throat> i.e., for example, domestic violence, theft, arson, um, and those type of, and also public uh, vagrancy laws. Uh, it is also an attempt to limit the franchise for certain white men as well, as I said, non-property-owning uh, white men. Uh, while there have been attempts at reforms by individual states over the past 30 years, many still remain disenfranchised. So here, uh, felony disenfranchisement laws today, as you can see by the map, where there's still laws um, as of 2016, 6.1 million Americans, or 2.5% of the voting age population, were prohibited from voting due to laws that disenfranchise citizens uh, convicted of felony offenses. Here are the top 10 states, the highest percentage of disenfranchised voters of 2016. Florida, though, uh, actually reinstated the franchise, but then has recently repealed the franchise for 1.6 million people. So it shows you how flexible and fluid it could be. <clears throat> uh, some of the impacts of disenfranchisement, 7.4% uh, of African Americans in the United States could not vote due to a felony conviction in 2016. In Kentucky, 26.15% of African Americans were disenfranchised, the highest percentage of all US states. Florida had the highest total, 1.6 per capita, which is about 10% <clears throat> disenfranchised population of all states. Disenfranchisement policies disproportionately impact people of color. Nationwide, as of 2016, one in every 13 black adults could not vote as a result of a felony conviction. And in four states, Florida, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia, more than one in five black adults was disenfranchised. Felony disenfranchisement has potentially affected the outcome of seven U.S. Senate elections since 1970 and one presidential election since 2000, not to mention communities impacted by mass incarceration lose potential voters who could influence public elections and change public policy. Restoring the vote to persons leaving prison could aid in their transition back into community life. Revocation of voting rights compounds the isolation of formerly incarcerated individuals from their communities and civic participation has been linked with lower recidivism rates uh, in most studies. In one study among individuals who had, <clears throat> excuse me, one, one study among individuals who had been arrested previously, 27% of non-voters were re-arrested compared to 12% of voters. Denying the right uh, to vote to an entire class of citizens is deeply problematic to a democratic society and counterproductive to effect effective reentry 
Fortunately, many states are reconsidering the archaic disenfranchisement policies with 24 states enacting reforms since 1997. But there is still much to be done before the United States will resemble comparable, resemble comparable nations, which are other Western Demo democratic nations in Europe, for example, in allowing full democratic participation of all citizens. And that is it. And if you want more information, a lot of this information came from the Sensing Project. And as I said, there's flyers in the back that you can take a look at as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, we wanted uh, Willie to start off with that information because I think it adds an important nuance um, where if we're talking politics and we're talking about the vote, um, this is, there's votes here, a lot of votes, and they know that. And of course, this is part of, part of the, the issue. So, so, so the other thing that uh, probably needs to be said is that, um, of course, 2020 this year, in addition to being an election year, uh, the theme for Black History Month this particular year is African Americans and the vote. Um, and that theme is chosen and decided upon by, uh, has been curated for years by the Association for the Study of Afro-American Life and History, as mentioned earlier. Um, and a lot of people were asking, is that because it's an election year that that, that was the theme? And the answer is, is no. This is uh, 2020 is the uh, 150th anniversary or sesquicentennial. We all had to learn to say that word this year. I, don't think, I think we all need to be honest that we didn't know how to say that word or what it meant, so we had to look it up. Uh, but the sesquicentennial of the 15th Amendment, which of course granted the right of, uh, for black men to vote, um, uh, and, uh, and it's also um, the anniversary uh, of the uh, amendment which uh, gave women the right to vote. And so um, Asala's most focused on sort of the black suffragist uh, uh, struggle and story, but entangled in that story is an interesting kind of give and take between uh, uh, the, the, the white women, the white suffragists that we sort of know about, um, uh, Susan B. Anthony and so on and that kind of thing, uh, and a real sort of uh, critical engagement uh, uh, there. And so our next uh, panelist, Mia, is going to be speaking to that issue. Um, okay, first of all, can you hear me? How is this mic doing? We good? Okay. Um, so I actually had an entree from that, but I'll go back to it. Either um, way. No, no, we're good. I'll, I'll do the history first. Um, so yes, this is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which is the amendment that gave women the right to vote. And if you spend any time in activist circles, or if you just read about it, you'll hear a lot of people say, no, 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 that gave white women the right to vote. And to a point that's true, but to a point that also erases the work of brilliant black suffragists who worked for that right to vote and were able to vote in 1920. And in fact, depending on where they lived, never didn't vote. And so I'm going to give a short history of that that's going to both acknowledge um, the racism involved in the women's suffrage movement, but also try and show that it's not as simple as that. Um, and so we often talk about the split between the abolition movement or the black rights movement and the suffrage movement after the 15th Amendment. 
And the reason for that is that the women's suffrage movement came out of the abolition movement. Seneca Falls Convention had Frederick Douglass speaking there. And these movements were completely intertwined. And through the 14th Amendment, a lot of women said, great, we can vote under the 14th Amendment. No problem. The language is there. That didn't work. They tried. They were arrested. But after the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment was passed. And the 15th Amendment explicitly said that the vote was only for black men. And now, not only were white women left out, but black women were as well. And there was a huge schism about what the priority should be and whether the victory should be taken and we should worry about women later. And as a result of this, you've probably heard some pretty racist quotes from Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And some of those are just as racist as they seem. Some of them have been truncated to make them seem even more racist. Um, a famous one is that Susan B. Anthony is quoted as saying that she would rather cut off her right arm than fight for the vote for the Negro, excuse me, man. But in reality, that quote said, I would rather cut off my right arm than fight for the vote of the Negro man only. Or first. I apologize. I could be misremembering that last word. It's been a long day. I taught today. Um, forgive me. So now this is in no way excusing the racism that came out of that. And some of the women in the suffrage movement saw an opportunity that in the South, fears of lynching and of black men, not fears of lynching, excuse me, the use of lynching and the claimed fears of black men and black sexuality fueled arguments that white women needed the right to vote. Because if white women had the right to vote, they could better protect themselves against the claims about black men and sexuality. And so the suffrage movement used that and used that racism and leaned into it. However, many northern white women behind the scenes, sometimes publicly, were working with black women and black women suffragists. And those women's names deserve to be remembered. And this is, I wanted to make sure that I didn't leave off one of these amazing women's names. Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth were on the front lines from the moment after, and they never stopped working with the white women who we now see as racist. And they were racist. And they, uh, Sojourner Truth famously refused to take sides between the two groups. And today we might call that her being aware of intersectionality, that she was being forced to choose between her race or her gender. But nevertheless, she remained working with both groups. Um, some of the other important women to remember are the Fortin sisters, Angelina Weld Grimke, Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, Annie Sims Banks, Mary Church Terrell, and Ida B. Wells. And I'm going to take a minute and talk about what Ida B. Wells did for black women in voting. Ida B. Wells, as many people in this room I'm sure know, was a brilliant journalist, an anti-lynching activist, and she was driven out of the South because of her anti-lynching activism. She moved to Chicago, and she became very active in politics there and in the suffrage movement. And she did something more. She participated with uh, some of the other women, Mary Church Terrell, for example, in starting these social clubs. 
that were meant to educate black women and bring them into the vote and to show them how important voting was and to argue on behalf of it. And um, my favorite story about, about Ida B. Wells with this is that she traveled with her delegation to the 1913 um, March for Women's Suffrage. And when she got there, she was told, excuse me, that she had to march in the back with the other black women suffragists who were there. And instead, she stood to the side. And when her delegation reached where she was, she joined them. And no one ever said anything to her, because what could you possibly say? Um, and so while we acknowledge the deep racism in the movement and the fact that 1920 did not guarantee the right for all women in this country, Native American women didn't even get the right then. We don't want to forget these brilliant women who fought for the vote and did vote. Many of them voted. In fact, so many black women voted in Florida in 1920 that they changed the laws to keep them from voting. Um, I don't know how I am on time, but okay, double checking. Um, the, the great presentation we just had about uh, felon disenfranchisement is actually also a great lead-in to talking about the ways in which voter suppression particularly targets women. Um, as you might have seen, this was a lot about what happens when people are incarcerated. Many people in this room might not know that if you're incarcerated awaiting trial, you legally have the right to vote in New York. But the problem is that the people in jail need to do the work to let you vote. Because if you're behind bars, you can't do that on your own. You need someone to bring you the ballot. You need someone to maybe even help you register. And the reason why this is relevant to women and voter suppression is because women are much more likely to be held in jail pending trial. Women often find cash to bail men out of jail, but they are the breadwinners, often, or just more willing to sacrifice that money to get someone out of jail. And when women are arrested, they often don't make bail. And maybe they say that money needs to go to feeding their children, or maybe they say that, you know, it's just not there. I wish I knew all these stories. But nevertheless, it is much more likely for a woman, likely a woman of color, to be held in jail pending trial, and she hasn't even been convicted of anything, and if she's there during an election, it's very unlikely she's going to be able to vote, despite that being a guaranteed right. And it's up to us to bring those things, to, to go into jails and to bring them ballots and to do the work. Um, a few other ways in which voter suppression targets women. Um, I see some women in here, I'm not gonna make you tell me, but 90% of women change their name when they get married or divorced. And luckily in New York, we don't have to deal with this, but if you live in a strict voter ID state, that means that up to 30 women, up to 30% of women, according to the Brennan Center for Justice, don't have the proper documentation to get an ID to vote. Because if you're in a strict voter ID state, that name better match perfectly, and it better match your current address. And we can't always get the right documentation. Sometimes originals are required. Sometimes it costs a lot of money. Sometimes it just doesn't happen in time. Um, and particularly if you've gone through multiple marriages or multiple divorces, that gets harder and harder and harder every time to prove. And unfortunately, of course, lower income women, disabled women, black women, other women of color are always going to be disproportionately impacted. I wish I had stats that broke down by race, but due to the gender data gap, we don't have enough of these stats. So I have to give you stats based on women in general, and you have to know that it disproportionately impacts women of color. Additionally, 
If you're a victim of domestic violence, you might be worried about your information being public. And then registering to vote carries with it a whole host of concerns. And for many, it's just easier not to vote because if it's your survival or voting, unfortunately, that's often an easy choice. Many states have something called address confidentiality programs, ACP programs. Now, these programs protect women, protect their addresses in terms of a separate PO box and just generally. They don't always protect your right to register to vote be kept private. And so we have so many women, and men, but of course mostly women, who are victims of domestic violence, who can't register to vote out of fear that their abusers will find their address. And of course, you're only allowed to use an ACP program if you have brought your abuser to court, which is a whole nother obstacle. That is not an option for many. Uh, I don't know how many people in here have been paying attention to the primaries, but if you have, you know that some states still use caucuses. Um, I could give a whole presentation on why I think caucuses are bizarre, but for women, they are a nightmare. If you are, again, a woman who is in an abusive relationship, you can't go in there and vote differently than your abuser. If you have children, what are you supposed to do with them? If, as women, are more likely to work hourly wage jobs with weird hours, how are you supposed to get off work to caucus? How are you supposed to stand in the face of someone intimidating you if you are a small woman who maybe just can't stand up to that? No shame, I'm 5'2". I have a big mouth on me, clearly, but I don't, I don't want to stand up to someone screaming in my face. There are so many ways in which women are particularly targeted by voter suppression tactics, and due to the gender data gap, we have almost no statistics on it. I've literally given you every statistic that exists on it out of my mouth tonight. Wow. So, yeah. Thank um, you. Thank you, Mia. Yeah. Thank you. Obviously, could go further. I keep going. As you Thank can you. see, I, what did, I told you, I told you, I'm very so proud of each and every one of these uh, individuals. That's uh, yes. Thank, you. and and hopefully there'll be more time to to you know uh, draw out and tease out some of them. But you gave us a lot to work with, and I think thank you so much. Um, all right, uh, William, you, you are a Renaissance man, as we uh, read in your, in your bio, and, and I know you have um, probably a number of different uh, uh, ways to sort of help us to understand some of this information. Um, and, you know, I'll let you, I, I can let you just do that, uh, uh, if you please, and, you know, just, just but uh, I, I do want to start to transition as you, as you make your comments, maybe just helping us to understand um, you know some of the some of these nuances and 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 uh, you know you hear a lot of people today saying you know what's the point of voting um, you know why should I waste my vote um, or we all know people I think if we're being really honest who just say I'm not gonna vote I don't vote um, and and so what can we be doing to encourage people to 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 change their minds what is behind that statement seems to me that that's sort of a um, that's saying a lot in and of itself saying I'm not going to vote there's there's some there's some anger behind that perhaps or some resentment well-founded considering our history as we've been hearing and so forth but but how do we get you know people to sort of change that and maybe you could deal with that part at the at the end of your comments good evening everyone and 
thank you for coming out and celebrating Black History Month. Uh, Asala had indicated that the theme of Asala this month is about the African-American and the vote. Asala makes a strong emphasis this year to take African-American history or black history beyond the month of February. Uh, too often, our institutions, uh, organizations, they have the African celebration of African-American history for February, and then it goes away. Uh, it's something that needs to be engaged from all levels. So maybe this would be the start that we can move this narrative beyond the month of February. Um, my peers have indicated historically uh, the problems with felony disenchantment as well as uh, women's suffrage, uh, the problems and the issues at hand. I'm going to move a little further because they have provided the foundational historical information that we need to understand that change has not taken place in over 100 years. We're still in the same position but with a different narrative. Change is a constant variable, all right? And if change doesn't happen, then that means stagnation sets in. When we look at the election uh, this year, and we look at the vote, because now we're gonna talk about the vote. Everyone talks about the White House vote, the primaries. Professor Mazinski indicated, well, some people said, well, I don't wanna vote. Why should I vote? I'm not, because the reason why they feel this way because there has not been enough effort to provide information at the grassroots level. Most individuals at the grassroots level are voting out of emotion. In the article that was uh, presented over Dr. Molesky, I indicated that the vote has to be an informative vote. It cannot be a vote based on party, Democrat or Republican, it has to be based off information. Too often is that information passed down. We see our assemblymen, congressmen, senators, mayors, when it's election time, what happens? They show up. But what happens after that? After they elected? We, we need to understand their record. How are they voting? Because you can have somebody in office for one year, two years, and they can be voting totally against what your principles are. You need to know what their record is like. We have to become a, 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 a community that's more well-informed in order to offset this. We have to hold our officials accountable. And because we're not holding them accountable, you're seeing the end result. Statistically, the black vote is diminishing. We had Barack Obama. Everybody was like, all right, Barack, we're all in. His second four years, the percentage of the African-American vote dropped. What's going on? Where's the enthusiasm? We need to be thinking about this. Currently, we have an election coming up. Where's the enthusiasm in the drive? Is it based on, okay, I don't like the current position, well, why don't you like it? Not just because your, your mother or your grandmother or, the, or your pastor, rabbi, imam says that, oh, guess what? I think you should vote this way. 
recently there was an endorsement with uh, Vice President Biden. And he says, you should go out here. He's been the, the, you know, the true test of the storm. We cannot hold on to the legacy of the past. You must rethink, reposition yourself, all right, if you're really looking at changing the current narrative. I said that he recently he got an he got a uh, endorsement. South Carolina, yeah. Clyburn, I believe. Clyburn, yeah. yeah. All right. Yes. Yes. So you know, I'm trying to stay current because that's what's important. We need to stay current so that we can address issues when we are when questions arise, so we can say, okay, yes, he was just endorsed. So we realized that, and we knew that he was going to do that because he made indication yesterday that he's going to make his announcement. So with that being said, this is how I see the vote. All that, my, that has passed on has laid the foundation. So the question that I raise is, what do we do from here? How do we change the narrative? And I would welcome uh, those comments when we have a period of time instruction that we can address those. Excellent. Well, you, you raised a lot of interesting issues. All of you raised a lot of interesting issues. And I, uh, I, I told you we intend to have a full uh, investigation here tonight, this evening, on all the issues that are affecting. And they are pertinent issues, right? Um, uh, last night at Stony Brook, we had uh, Corey Wise, uh, one of the um, uh, known as before as the Central Park Five, um, um, now the uh, Exonerated Five. And, you know, what came out of that discussion, you realize that the people who are in positions, DAs, prosecutors, uh, who, who, who were able in this case to force a young man who only went down to the station to accompany his friend, to, 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 they could psychologically put in place enough pressure on him to give a confession for something that he was not even at. Um, but those, a lot of those people are elected. They're elected into, into positions, not all the time, and it depends on the place, but assistant DAs, DAs, and so forth. And so one of the things, William, and, and all of the comments made me just think of is the importance of these local elections. We are, of course, focused on the big one, right? How could we not be? Any, any presidential year, uh, the whole nation's eyes are fixed to uh, the presidential election. But in fact, and, and this may be, you know, the thing that, 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 that might save us this year, because uh, uh, when you look at the landscape of candidates, at least on the Democratic side this year now, we've noticed, it's hard not to notice, there's no uh, African-American candidates uh, sort of, you know, in the running, any major ones anyways. And, um, uh, and so, you know, that might be partly, partly an answer to your question of what is, what is the interest anymore? What is the, the connection? Um, but local elections remain relevant. Uh, you could argue more relevant in many ways than what's happening right now on the national level. And, and we know what's happening on the national level. It's a, it's a bit of a mess. What, and, and, I, you know, and I don't mean that in a partisan way. Whatever, if, whatever party you're in, it's a mess, I think. Um, so, 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 so with that kind of in mind, you know, I, I want to get at, thank, you know, we want to get at, at, that, at that question. One of the things I've been noticing 
um, in my discussions with people too, is a lot of people doubt. They doubt that there are impediments to voting. They doubt that there's voter suppression happening at all, even though it's been widely reported on. It's literally in our faces, black and white print. Um, they doubt that this voter ID thing is some kind of measure hearkening back to a time of Jim Crow, that, that when people make a, connection, a comparison between some of the voter suppression tactics happening now and some of the more popularly known uh, voter suppression tactics that happened in the past, like the poll tax, uh, like, you know, grandfather clause, like uh, literacy tests and all of these things. They say, no, that's not the same thing. Voter ID, that's harm. That, that has nothing to do with this. Um, okay, I guess we're crazy then. Um, uh, but, you know, and I want to mention, people paid their poll tax. People paid it proudly, right? Uh, you know, so you can have an impediment but for many African Americans, you know, as someone once said, it's, there's no shame in being black, but it's mighty inconvenient at times. You know, <laughs> they paid the poll tax and showed up. You know, um, so I find all those things kind of fascinating. So especially when, when people say they don't want to vote, with all that history, what are we to respond to that? Uh, Willie or or Mia, we uh, want to jump in there. Yeah, um, in terms of voter ID laws, it's it's a voter. Yeah, voter ID laws. It's, it's interesting. Uh, recently, I was reading about um, the RNC and the DNC are, are suing each other in, I believe it's uh, Michigan. Um, and what's going on is, you know, when we see these disenfranchised people um, who are not able to vote, what happens is, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. Um, what happens is, when you have the laws and you can't get your ID straight, Give me one sec. I apologize. I lost my train of thought. I have a couple of different ideas here, and I'm just trying to struggle through them. Take your time. Yeah, I apologize. Um, but basically, voter ID laws create obstacles for people to vote. We already mentioned that a few times. Um, one of the issues that, that's come up recently, again, in Michigan, for example, the RNC is, is suing the DNC about um, carpooling laws. Um, and why is that important? Because for people who can't... Um, you know, who can't maybe drive themselves to a to a, um, a polling station, or people who don't have vehicles, or people who just want to get together and vote together and, and travel together. Um, <clears throat> if they do that, it's a misdemeanor. And why are they doing that? They're doing that because they're trying to eliminate certain people from voting in certain areas. Um, this kind of goes to this idea of they call um, jail gerrymandering or prison gerrymandering, um, where you move people from an urban area or from some suburban area where they're arrested and they're placed in prison and they lose the right to vote and then they go into prison but they're counted towards the caucus or towards the population of this of the um, county that they're, the prison's in. They can't vote but they can, you know, their bodies count for towards the voting so they have yeah, unequal, unequal, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, so the idea of voter ID laws, again, it's, it's, just, it's, it's a way of criminalizing not just color, not just race, but also poverty. Um, it's a way of you know, stigmatizing people where they feel that you know, they're not up to par, they're not actually equal citizens that they can participate in, in our elections. Um, and it's something that transcends class as well. Uh, for example, um, 
There was, uh, if you guys are familiar with George Steinbrenner, the former Yankee owner from uh, the 90s and, and so forth, he, uh, he was a felon in the 70s for uh, fraud, election fraud. And he lost the right to vote for a couple of years in the 70s. And it, it, uh, it stuck with him. And he said that not being able to vote, not being able to participate, you know, he was voting for Nixon, that was his thing. But he said, he said not being able to, uh, to, to participate, it hurt him. You know, he was a patriotic American. He loved his country. He wanted to be a part of it. Uh, he had the resources where he was able to, after a couple years, you know, re-enfranchise himself because he's, you know, he had unlimited, virtually unlimited resources. <laughs> but then you find someone who doesn't have that resources, someone who's poor, someone that can't afford or doesn't know. Um, like Mia was saying earlier, people aren't aware of what their, their rights are as, as felons, as you know, convicted felons or potentially felons. Um, they, they're stuck with it. They're stuck with it for the rest of their lives, you know, regardless of whether they can do it or they can get it reversed or not. And it's a stigma that they can't participate in, in their communities. They can't participate in local elections. They can't participate in, you know, in dialogues about these. They can only watch. You know? And it's something that really affects the way people feel about themselves and the way they feel about each other. Um, so I kind of hit on a couple different topics well, there. <laughs> so yeah. I'll, 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 I'll let you handle it. The Judge Steinbrenner. No one will ever forget that example. Um, yeah, I mean, and also just, just building on that, you know, for one thing, voter ID laws are claimed to be needed because of voter fraud. Um, but studies have shown that voter fraud, in terms of individual voter fraud, not what he did with election fraud, basically doesn't exist. It's something like they've done studies and out of a million voters, they'll find two examples of voter fraud. So that's one argument against voter ID laws. They're, they're to fix a problem that doesn't exist. Um, another is like in New York, we don't have voter ID laws, we're fine. It's not a problem. Um, additionally, as I mentioned, you know, women aren't the only people who suffer from those kinds of things. A middle-class white woman might have trouble getting a voter ID that correctly matches her name. Um, if you move and you don't get an ID with a, your driver's license, let's say you move a county. Like, if you move across county lines, you don't need a new state ID, but you don't have the right address on it anymore. And if you go to vote at a polling place, they could tell you that ID is incorrect. So this idea of, well, everyone has an ID. For one thing, they don't. But for another, even people who do have IDs have their votes suppressed. And if you need any more evidence that voter ID laws are racist, a North Carolina law was overturned after 2016 because they passed a voter ID law, and then what they did was close DMVs in majority-minority neighborhoods. So, you know, I, that to me is pretty big proof. Um, I'll add one more thing and then pass along because obviously I could keep talking. Um, <laughs> it's a problem, I'm sorry. Um, is that... I love it. Um, a, lot of these new vo a lot of these new voter suppression laws have sprung up after 2013. And in 2013, we had a case go to the Supreme Court called Shelby v. Holder. And what Shelby v. Holder did was it overturned one tiny part of the Voting Rights Act that basically made the Voting Rights Act inapplicable anymore. And so what happened was from the Voting Rights Act in 1965 to 2013, um, we had a period where uh, voting laws, particularly in southern states, had to be approved by the federal government. And then after 2013, that ended. And it 
really empowered a lot of Republican, I mean, I'm sorry, it is partisan, a lot of Republican voter suppression laws to be passed. And so 2016, when we talk about minority turnout, when we talk about what was mentioned in terms of black turnout going down, part of it could be apathy, part of it could be information. A huge amount of it is that 2016 was the first election we've had since 1965 without the Voting Rights Act. Mm. 14 states had new voter suppression laws between the 2012 election and the 2016 election. Yeah, that's, that's a major piece. Thank you for reminding us about that because um, the Voting Rights Act, which is due to be renewed, was not quite renewed and, and, uh, or was renewed in a much more watered down fashion. They still don't have the formula. It still hasn't been. Yeah, it, it ripped the guts out of it, basically, was what, is what, what my understanding was. Yes. In New York, do you have to present no. 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 And the first time you, if you have registered to vote at a new location, let's say, the first time you do have to show identification, not afterwards. Really? I so literally never have. If you have moved, that's and true. You, yeah. If you have moved, have even to show. the same county, even in the same town. Yeah. You don't have your ID uh, in that in red, in the, uh, register shows your name and your address and party affiliation and so on. And if you uh, if you elect to show a party affiliation, and you, if, if there's any change, you need to show identification, but not after the only the first time. However, the voting rolls are loaded with mistakes. People who have moved, people who have died. You know, it's the old Chicago story. (laughs) And there's so many errors in there. If you insist that you have the right, uh, you are in the right public place and so on, you can vote by affidavit. But that's the best you can do. And it's it's just, there are. You can also do a same day, go to a judge if you think you've been purged. No, I'm yeah. just I'm just offering yeah. the information. But, but, but this you is can. this is good data because it's it adds a little a human face to to the day to day. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> no one knows that much about uh, uh, voting except the volunteers and people who work who work there. Yeah, it's. I was it's, gonna say no. You can't. Like I've never had to show ID. I think. Yeah, I think it's it's implemented differently. <laughs> it can be implemented differently. Community volunteers. There, there's things. There's. Sorry, this is actually a huge issue too. Um, the training of poll workers isn't even across different places. In New York, you shouldn't ever have to show an ID to vote. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, 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 so, 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 you know, uh, I want to, I want to move toward a, a discussion. We prom- we wanted to do that, and that's a very important thing. I just, just wanted. Did you want to have a chance to say anything else? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to pose a uh, a question. We're going to look at things from a different perspective. All right, because that's what we have to do. We have to change our thinking. So she just, we just mentioned the fact, the fact about these laws and how they're suppressing the vote. And how they're suppressing the vote. So the question that, that, I'm, that I'm looking at, and I'm taking a different position, I'm looking at it from a different lens. What are the strategies that have been implemented to offset this? We know that the, that the plan is to suppress. 
what is the intellectual think tank, the legal minds, all right, of those who are being suppressed? What has, what has been done and why are they not proactive in offsetting this? Just another way of thinking. Okay. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I, I you know, I th you know, one one thing I, I, I think we wouldn't have done our duty tonight if we don't at least mention um, the fact that that we've had uh, foreign interference in our elections. Okay, <laughs> uh, in in a place that that seemed unthinkable, and I, and, you know, America and how sacrosanct we hold democracy and our election process and the democratic process, etc. We've had foreign intervention in our election in 2016, and, and even though we're gonna pretend like we don't know what's going on, we know it's happening in 2020. Um, I don't have any proof of, you know, any, there's no smoking gun about Iowa, but I feel like we're gonna hear something. And you tell me an app went crazy, okay, interesting. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of things went crazy. But, but we, what we do know for sure, we know that um, there's, you know, whatever their intentions, the Russians seem to know something that we here in America may have forgotten, which is how important and critical the black vote is. Because what one of the things they were doing was creating, I read, thousands and thousands of false Facebook profiles of African-American, supposed African-American voters, African-Americans, you know, saying things on Facebook, doing things, and it really, really did did what it was intended to do in many ways, um, which is to utilize the power of the, the black swing vote, which is critical. And from what I've been understanding, now I'm, you were all reading just different sources, but, but some credible sources that I have read uh, suggest that this had a lot to do with Trump's getting elected in 2016. Um, a lot of people who had voted for Obama, whether they were black or not, uh, you know, change their view, and, and, and a lot of this intervention is part of the reason. So I guess my point there is, on the one hand, while that's very scary, in terms of answering that first question we started with, why should I vote? You know, th they understand the power of your vote. Why don't we understand the power of our vote, right? And so, so it's, it's, it's a, that's a heavy one to end off on, but uh, I'd invite any any you know wrapping up comments uh, uh, there, or 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 we could or we could also go, maybe go to the audience and uh, and have uh, some response with that. Completely, but <laughs> yeah, yeah it's okay. I'll, I'll move yeah. over. Okay. Yeah, everyone is asked to bring a little wine to a party, and uh, okay, <laughs> it's very comfortable. It's cozy. It's okay. Everyone is asked to bring 
a bit of wine to the, to the party, and each one decides, well, if I just bring water with all that wine, who's going to notice? But when it comes to pouring the wine, all they have is water. So if you uh, have come to the decision that it doesn't matter what I do, at what, what, what kind of weight do I carry? Well, if enough people decide they don't carry any weight, then they're right. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So self-disenfranchisement or bowing out of the system is every bit as important as those who have been deliberately segregated or have it made impossible for them to express their choice. Now Interesting. And I know we can all hear each other in here, but we are recording, so that's why we're doing, doing it that way. So if, if anyone would like to respond, this is the, you don't have to sit on his lap I don't, or mine. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, Dr. Colson, all right, in the house, cool. <laughs> to add a little something to, uh, to our discussion and just uh, recognizing that uh, for, for me and, and my belief that I see that at a young age that the, um, our children are not seeing the representation as far as just uh, starting within the school systems, as far as looking at administration, teachers, um, seeing that where they make a difference and then as they continue to grow and mature, then they come in contact and further see that w where is the... Um, yes, per, uh, President Obama was elected, but look at how long and how hard, and then it's it's gone uh, as far as so. I think it's just so important that they um, that we recognize that the vote does make a difference, but it's very difficult when at young ages they're not seeing, and then where do they do see a lot of representation? Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of representation in incarceration. Uh, there's a lot of representation in. Uh, areas where we don't want them to go and don't want them to see uh, as far as in the entertainment, um, just uh, industry, there's over-representation, but it, to where uh, a lot of uh, young students that they believe that this is, or, or athletics, and, um, and then they don't realize that there's other parts uh, and really, um, I, I think I'll stop there. Can and uh, have a quick response to that? Sure. It has to do with Black History Month, too, so okay. it really ties in. Um, Good scene. Good scene. Um, I have the honor of teaching a Black History class, and I'm TAing Professor Maletsky's. And um, something that I think is so important about Black History Month, which should go longer, and that I think is so important about these classes and it as a discipline is that too often American history for black people is taught as oppression and victimhood. And there's so many beautiful stories of exactly what you're talking about. And that's one of the reasons why I was not leaving this room without giving that list of these amazing women. And I think it's the point, right? It's the point of our system, of systemic racism, that we see more of the, the entertainers or the people incarcerated, even though so many other people exist. But it's this narrative, particularly for, for our history. Something that I love in the class that I teach is every time we learn about a new great you know, hero from African-American history, they want to know why they haven't learned about them. And it's because it serves the purpose. And that's why panels like this, Black History Month, Africana Studies as a Discipline are so urgent. And, and forgive me, I think it speaks exactly to what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I think one of the things we, we, we really do well to recognize those historical examples of 
of grit, you know, of, you know, I'm going to pay the poll tax even though it's a, uh, an insult to my dignity to do so, and no one else has to do so, but I'm going to do it. That's how important this vote for me is. I'm going to lose credit at the company store. I'm going to lose my reputation, my ability to make a livelihood or feed my family. That's how important it is or it was to folks, some of the people that have been mentioned, to vote, to exercise their constitutional right to do so. Um, we're going to go just real quick. Willie was yeah, going to add something. I just wanted to uh, add yeah, in no, terms no, of uh, you know, criminalization in black communities and kind of the stigma of criminalization of, of and black youth in particular and how that affects their, their sense of self in terms of uh, participating in society. Um, I mean, one, of, uh, one historian... Um, calls it the condemnation of blackness. You know, crime has always been associated with blackness since the emancipation um, through uh, chain gangs, through convict leasing, up to the history of the 20th century. And up to today, where you see mass incarceration, where you see over-policing of, you know, black neighborhoods, you see surveillance of, within schools, within the communities, and not just from the police, but also from people uh, surrounding them. Um, so I think what, what that does is it creates this stigma of just, I'm not part of society, so why should I care? Why should I vote for Obama if Obama is, you know, this guy talking about pathology of the black family or he's talking about, you know, this or that? Um, he doesn't relate to me. So there's this gap between, you know, that, that policing and over-surveillance over really kind of puts on people's backs, you know, black people, young black people uh, in particular, where they just aren't, uh, they don't view themselves as part of the democratic body. Okay. You wanted to say something, sir? Yes, I wanted to uh, just give an example that somebody who actually, I actually work with gave in regards to your, your comment about just seeing people as victims. He was talking about, which is a whole other subject, he felt that a lot of people from foreign countries who are black don't identify as black because he said they were, that they just viewed us as being slaves. And he said just, it was just poetic. He says, we were kings. We were regular people. We've had whole lives after slavery. And the, you know, there was another, it was a patron here, black man I knew. He said they, what they do is they look at us as if we had the deprived childhood and Chris Rock in one of his, everybody hates Chris, did a riff on that. Do you remember when the social worker came to the home? And, yeah, and she was assuming that there was no presence. And, yeah, but you know, he was, I wish the man was here to actually give words. But the truth is, is that, yeah, people are much more than victims. Thank you. Yeah, I think I know what you're what you're getting at there, and 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 you raised some interesting issues. I think you know maybe uh, William maybe could speak to real quickly, but 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 sometimes I I've, I've experienced this myself. Sometimes people are why do we have to always focus on slavery. What is a what are some of the other you know, and 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 that that's an interesting point. You know, right now we're in a we're in a a somewhat related to bring you know sort of reconnecting debate. Uh, with regard to reparations in the reparations uh, uh, you know movement here um, and there are there are uh, black Americans African Americans who are saying um, you know reparations should really be focused on 
as they call it, and as they call themselves, American descendants of slavery, or ADOS. I don't know if anyone's heard about, familiar. Yeah, yes, well, this was, <laughs> it's true. There's, there's something going on there. So I don't know, uh, well, maybe you can help us to, you sound like you were, you were nodding as this gentleman was speaking, so what were you gonna say there? So there are a couple of things that I need to address at this time. Um, the distinguished lady said no hope, separated, impactful. Why should we, why, why should not vote? The gentleman, distinguished gentleman who came forward talked about representation. When you don't see these things in your community, when you don't see them on the media, they're not put over the waves, they're not translated through music and lyrics and video, representation. It has a problem. When media, TV personalities come on TV and say, I have never voted except for the first time for Barack Obama, what was that individual doing all these times? And the impact that he had on the sports community. And who am I referring to? Stephen A. Smith. All right. These are things that we have to look at. No hope. What is the impact of the election on me? I have four brothers. My parents are struggling. My community is dilapidated. No one is coming in and helping me. But yet you want me to vote. Vote for what? Why should I vote? Look at it from a different lens. See, we can talk about it in this setting here because we have been fortunate to have been exposed to this data. But what about the one that's really struggling, whether they be white or black, from Appalachia to, the, to West Virginia to here and, and, and the ghettos of, of New York City? Hopelessness. Hopelessness. So something has to be done. And then so maybe we need to go back, as Professor Malinsky said earlier, what are your local politicians doing? Who are they educating? And as far as you were saying, uh, some people don't feel that, you know, they have this, this sense that we are uh, not a people of, 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 of stature, okay? Well, that is by design as well. Don't think that this is uh, happenstance. It is by design to fragment a group of people from diverse backgrounds for a slice of pie. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Let's give it up. That was uh, that was uh, <laughs> so it, yeah. You grew up in Louisiana, these blacks, you said they tried to enslave the Indians. But they what my friend's quote was is that they tried to enslave the Indians, but they weren't able to do that. And he said we were able to withstand it and be productive, but you know, which is true. It's another way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. Some, some, a little more to that too. Um, but, but, yeah. You have a, you, you have a, you have a culture. 
somebody takes you out of it and enslaves you, but you're still in the same geographic neighborhood. It wasn't like how many thousands of miles of ocean between where you're enslaved and where you were born. You know, so for the Native American, they may have attempted to enslave them, but you know, they get out, get away however they can. They got a place to go to. You got a place to run to. But he's talking about that they but I, I still think they also had an ability to es to escape. It's they had enough. connections on the outside. Yeah, but the the vote. Okay, yeah. Well, you know, you talk. You know, what half the country, half the adult population doesn't vote, and um, I met the. I met one of the gentlemen who helped write the EHA, the Education of the Handicapped Act, and we had an interesting debate over the fact that it was like, you know, they had FAPE, Free Appropriate Public Education, LRE, Least Restrictive Environment, you know. You go back to like with um, school segregation, they said with all God's speed, you know, the, you know, the system, the way they write the laws, the way every, it's, it's vague, you know, and then they set up a, 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 a system where um, you have to, to get the law to do what it's supposed to do, you know, you have to, it's, a, it's an argument. It's real, it's not a conversation, you know, and, um, Within the disability community, there's a certain, you know, mindset of what a free appropriate education is. But for the general public, who doesn't deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis, they have a different generalization. You know, uh, that stuff wears you down. You know, when 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 it's you know the the glacial change. You know, it's evolutionary, not revolutionary. And you know, going back, just like with, we tend to blame individuals from a different time, but we take it out of context of that time frame. And like I say, the how how the Constitution was written, it, it was written, it, it was written, not necessarily a hundred percent concrete. And the amendments, some were more concrete than others. Uh, here in Brentwood, we have a, a, a county legislative district. We have an assembly um, state district. They were supposed to be minority districts. But the way they were created, you got to be a middle-of-a-road person to get to be elected. You, you can't be too far right. You can't be too far left. You get mediocrity. Paul also just mentioned, because you. you brought up the disability community, only 27% of polling places are fully ADA accessible. Yeah, this is the kinds of things that make you just pull your hair out of your head, right? <laughs> you, you, and, 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 and yeah, so we have a lot, there is a lot to contend with, um, and, and it does in many ways lead to anger, apathy, disaffection, uh, uh, cynicism, um, uh, you know, but, but what I'm hearing too, if I understood correctly, uh, at best we may call it our system of checks and balances and, and compromise, but at worst, it's really a divide and conquer kind of thing. And it, and it, and it you know, constituencies and groups that should be working together can't work together or 
are, uh, uh, you know, with gerrymandering and redistricting and all of these different tricks, really, <laughs> techniques, we'll call them techniques, because we're going to be nice tonight. Um, but what they really do is keep uh, folk from really getting together and empowering themselves, you know, only too, so much. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's useful. It's, it's, it's a lot of the same kind of things that we've been, that have been said here tonight. Of, 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 we have to be educated about this. this. That's clear, I think, right? And that is a, not about formal education, of, to be, that, we're, we're, but, but educate ourselves, wherever we come, whatever walk of life we come from, wherever we're coming from, uh, about the nuances, the details, the, the, the fine print, right? Uh, this, this country's always very good at, at doing the best at legal uh, uh, stuff, which is probably no other country on earth that has, that has, has done. But, 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 but sometimes we also get uh, blind to what's happening. We, we uh, imprison more people than any other country in the world. Um, we, we come up with new ideas like privatized prisons. You know, okay, well, what if we take these things that the state has done historically and privatize them? It's one of the fastest growing industries in America. And you can buy stock, it's right on the, trading on the stock market as we speak. Okay, um, so, so, so you can see, with, when, when Willie was talking about, you can see that there's this, there is an economic impetus to these kinds of things and to warehousing people. And even as it is, we only, the people who are, you know, whose votes are not impinged upon, um, there's always historically only been, as someone mentioned, I think, a, 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 small, a somewhat small percent of the population that actually votes in America, right? So um, I think the powers that be come to depend on these kinds of forces so that they can oftentimes re remain in, in power. And um, that doesn't mean everyone is bad who's in power, but, but uh, more often than not, that has been to the detriment of people of color in this country, but also women, um, disabled, um, um, Native Americans, uh, African Americans certainly and obviously, and uh, Asian Americans as well. Uh, uh, had something called the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know. And just, America's just bold, you know. <laughs> put put the, the name right in the act, Chinese Exclusion Act. It tells you right what it is. Um, so, so these, so you know, I think, uh, I don't want to go on and on, but I guess we're, we, I know we're, we're coming to time, um, and, and, and we may have to, unless anyone is dying to say anything else, uh, and that's okay if you are, but uh, we are we're a little bit over what we said. But I think, um, I think you know, what it comes down to is, 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 uh, is trying to find empowerment in and amongst these problems. We, we've laid out the problems, I think, extremely well tonight, but our history is filled with stories of people who succeeded and who survived despite these problems. And, and I think that, to me, is the best part of our system, you know? If you have the personal grit to do it, if you have a, God give you a mind to do it, and you have the ability uh, 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 to, to, if, if they can get around stuff, we can get around stuff too. And historically, uh, that has been the case. And it's, and it's brought out, in, in those cases, the best of America. 
You know, if America said all men are created equal but was not able to live up to it, there have been groups, African Americans and other groups have come forward and helped America to live up to its own potential greatness because these groups love America. And we all, I think we all feel that way. So um, well, we want to give our, our panel a, a, a thanks for brilliantly dissecting the issues. Um, staying pretty good on the partisanship thing. I don't think we knew. We uh, couldn't tell what's happening there. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and we'll keep this coffee and uh, I don't know how long, until they kick us out, I guess we can we stay. But we invite you to come and continue the dialogue with us. And, and we thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thank you. Despite only having an hour, Zebulon and his fellow speakers shared a wealth of information and even had time for some engaging discussions with our fellow patrons and librarians. Thank you again, Zebulon, Mia, and Willie, alongside everyone else who participated. And thanks as always to you, the listener, and to the Brentwood Historical Society for making Brentwood stories possible. The music for today's episode was brought to you courtesy of Kevin McLeod at contact.filmmusic.io.